This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So this is part one of the two series on effect of smoking on COVID-19. We are talking with Professor Taylor Hayes and Professor Robert Vassello from the Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Welcome, Taylor and Rob. Good morning. Good morning. So we have been listening to a lot of vital signs and uh, our speakers have mentioned, experts have mentioned that O2 sats should be a vital sign. And a cardiologist came to our show and mentioned that QT intervals, we should know the QT intervals of all patients because of the medications we are using. My question to you is, should cigarette smoking be considered a, considered a vital sign for patients with COVID-19 symptoms? I'll, I'll take a first shot at that, uh, Amit. I, yes, <laughs> the answer is clearly yes. Uh, and the reason I say that, it's an old idea, really, um, an idea that was first talked about in the late 1990s when um, some of the first national guidelines were published. We know that knowing smoking status uh, and collecting it systematically is important to help clinicians uh, intervene for patients who smoke. An interesting statistic that I learned from a project we did at Mayo Clinic in our Comprehensive Cancer Center is that over a third of patients coming into the cancer center had no tobacco use status documented at all. Uh, and so if that happens, clinicians are not alerted that they need to intervene or provide some information to the patient, at least advice to quit. So for me, the most important uh, answer is yes. Collecting tobacco use status systematically, making a part of the vital sign collection when patients are being roomed or when they're checking in would be a, um, an important way to identify patients who smoke. You asked specifically about COVID-19. So the answer, of course, is that obviously yes. Uh, as patients are checked in in any part of our uh, clinical practice, whether it's in the hospital or in the ambulatory setting, it should be collected as a vital sign because it will be important no matter what condition they have uh, for clinicians to be aware of and, uh, and then uh, can provide advice to quit or, or treatment for smoking cessation. I can perhaps just add a, a little bit to that, to what Taylor said, Amit, uh, just saying that I think it's really crucial to get a, a smoking history because there are some patients who will be cigarette smokers and potentially have undiagnosed respiratory illness. There's a proportion of patients who are active smokers and have significant COPD, which is unrecognized. They may have a cough, uh, which they just assume is a smoker's cough. But in fact, if you test them, uh, you find that they may have significant limitation in lung function. And so by asking that question and then eliciting a history and then finding out that somebody actually smoked for a substantial amount of time, that should alert the clinician to then be thinking about the potential of underlying lung disease, perhaps look at the chest x-ray a bit more carefully to see if there are signs of hyperinflation or emphysema or any other signs of pre-existing lung disease. 
And certainly in the context of COVID infection, that may have important implications in terms of management, therapy, uh, prognosis, and so forth. In addition to smoking history, I think it's also crucial to ask about other tobacco products and ask questions about whether the patient has been using any e-cigarettes or vaping or any other inhalation because all of those things potentially can impact uh, the clinical course of illness. So it's, it's great, Rob, that you mentioned. It leads very well to my next question. We now know that most patients with COVID-19 who present in the hospital present as a respiratory illness. But it's been surprising that we have been concentrating on the virus and uh, all the things that COVID does with x-ray changes in the lung that we haven't bothered about asking or categorically asking smoking at the time of a patient's presentation. Knowing what we know now, don't you think that smoking plays a much bigger role in these patients uh, who have the COVID-19 illness and present with respiratory disorders? That's a fantastic question, Amit, and I'll take a stab at that. Um, I think there's a number of reasons potentially uh, that may explain why accurate documentation of smoking exposure and smoking history, as well as potentially exposure to e-cigarettes and other products uh, like that, uh, may not have been captured as effectively as one would expect. One of the things we need to keep in mind is that a significant number of publications that came out that describe um, clinical series of patients that were seen within uh, the hospital setting with COVID-19 came from uh, parts of the world that were dealing with uh, uh, spikes of activity and overwhelming amounts of um, medical activity related to the COVID pandemic. So for example, some of the data coming out of Wuhan, some of the data coming out of the north of Italy, some of the data coming out from Spain, data from New York, uh, these were um, areas in the world where COVID-19 hit in a particularly devastating way. And thinking about this, if, if you're an ED physician, if you're an intensive care unit physician, if you're a hospitalist and you're overwhelmed admitting all of these patients who are incredibly sick, it's relatively easy to see how uh, some of the practitioners were potentially practicing more in disaster mode form, as opposed to the usual way we practice where we have the time to meticulously collect all the details in the history. If you're sort of putting out fires consistently, uh, spending the time to take an accurate smoking history or inhalational exposure history and so forth may have gotten relegated to something that um, somebody else was going to do or, or maybe was just not felt to be as important given all that was going on at the time. So I, I suspect that a significant amount of, of historical uh, pieces of information were missed simply because the medical system was so strained. Um, and, and, and so that might be one of the key reasons why there's a relative underrepresentation of the overall um, smoking um, exposure uh, within uh, some of those uh, cohorts. My uh, question to Taylor is, you've done phenomenal, huge amount of work in understanding smoking and the prevalence in different parts of the world. 
Rob mentioned some of the areas, the Wuhan in China. Now we are seeing in, um, of course, New York, our largest cities in US, uh, India, Brazil. They have a large density of smokers in the large cities and also in these countries where we are seeing a huge number of cases with COVID-19. Do you think smoking had anything to do if you have two heat maps, one of the smokers and one of COVID, it seems to match uh, with these countries. Do you think it has anything to play or is it just mere chance? The honest answer is I don't know, uh, but uh, what you're suggesting is that some of these areas that had that were hot spots, as Rob described and as you uh, described in your question, also have very high smoking prevalence, much higher than we do across the general population in the U.S. U.S. adult prevalence is now between 14 and 15 percent, which is the lowest it's ever been uh, since the modern cigarette was, was introduced. Um, in some of those countries, for example, in China, the smoking prevalence among men is well over 40 percent. In, in much of uh, Europe, uh, in, in Spain, in Italy, uh, and in parts of Central and Eastern Europe, the smoking prevalence is again 30% uh, or higher. So it may be more than coincidental that some of these areas are hotspots for a highly infectious respiratory illness as well as hotspots for high smoking prevalence. Um, and to echo what Rob said, knowing how often we fail to collect current tobacco use status in normal practice, uh, when, when it's a disaster, when people are in crisis mode, uh, simply trying to survive and see the next patient, my guess is that that data is not collected at all. Uh, and so it brings up questions about uh, things that I know we're going to discuss, some of the ideas that people have about cigarette smoking and whether or not it's a risk factor versus potentially even protective from COVID-19 infection and uh, serious illness. So smoking, we know it's an important risk factor. We've talked for decades regarding risk factor for chronic cardiovascular disease, COPD. Now, what is the interaction between these comorbid conditions and COVID-19 and smoking? So I'll take a stab at that, uh, Ahmed. So that's a, that's a great question and um, a really important question because it's very clear that um, most individuals infected with COVID-19 will actually do well and survive illness. Um, and it's only a small proportion of individuals infected who will get very sick and need to be hospitalized. And it's an even smaller fraction that end up in the ICU and a, a fraction of those will die. And key to identifying the individuals who are at highest risk are factors like age, which consistently comes out as one of the most important determinative outcomes, as well as comorbid conditions. And there's a number of comorbid conditions that consistently um, come out in different case series as being really important in defining individuals at risk. And, and amongst those comorbidities, hypertension, diabetes, uh, chronic lung disease, and chronic cardiovascular disease emerge again as key 
comorbid factors that um, are, are predictive of bad outcomes. The, um, if we get to the subject of, of thinking about how does smoking link uh, between uh, those, uh, it's hard to know because smoking, of course, uh, is one of the most important causes of chronic lung disease as well as chronic cardiovascular disease. But given that you're looking again at a population at risk, most of which are of an older age group, certainly above the age of uh, 60 and 65 is, is where the mortality really starts uh, to trend upwards, uh, then the incidence of, of um, lung disease as well as cardiovascular disease in that population is increased even in non-smokers. But again, um, I think it really hints uh, to the fact that individuals who are either active or former smokers are certainly at much higher risk of having both chronic pulmonary as well as chronic cardiovascular disease and, and implying that um, current or former smokers are, are just going to be much more likely to be within that cohort of patients that have those comorbid conditions that would be predictive of worse outcomes from COVID infection. Yep, so this leads to an important question. We have heard a lot about the ACE receptors and the angiotensin, renin-angiotensin system involvement in COVID. Uh, what role does the ACE receptor play in the COVID-19 illness? And does smoking have anything to do with the ACE receptors expression in the lung or, or, or in the illness itself? Yeah, I'll, I'll address this, Samet. So this, this is a, a, a really fascinating uh, topic that um, is a focus of, of tremendous research activity at this time. So this uh, ACE2 uh, protein is an enzyme that is uh, a physiological uh, component of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system that is a key uh, regulatory system that is involved in regulating uh, the vascular system. This ACE2 protein, it turns out, is present in a whole variety of cell types. It's present within a number of epithelial cells that line the airways, as well as the nasal uh, passages. And we can find this ACE2 protein expressed also in epithelial cells in alveolar uh, structures, in particular in type two alveolar epithelial cells. Those are the cells that make surfactant that maintains and is key to maintaining uh, the structure and surface tension characteristics of alveoli, keeping them open as we breathe. In addition to the lung, this ACE2 protein is also expressed in vascular uh, structures and endothelial cells. It's expressed in kidneys, in the liver, it's expressed in the testes. So it's widely expressed. But importantly, and, and perhaps the reason why it's really important to know about this ACE2 protein is, is the discovery that the, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID-19 uh, pandemic, binds to this ACE2 protein. 
and the binding of uh, one of the spike proteins on the virus to this ACE2 protein is a key interaction that then enables uh, entry of the virus and direct infection of uh, epithelial cells and entry into the host. Um, this is a really important issue because recognizing that uh, this uh, enzyme that is a key component of this renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system is essentially the receptor that is recognized by the virus and then enables binding and internalization of the virus, raised all kinds of questions about what potentially might be the effect of factors that influence expression of the ACE2 protein, how may factors that influence the expression of the protein influence infectivity, susceptibility to, to, to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and potentially outcomes from infection. So for example, uh, because of data that uh, drugs that inhibit uh, the uh, angiotensin-converting uh, enzyme uh, system ACE inhibitors, um, for example, uh, because those uh, drugs uh, have the potential to influence ACE2 expression and potentially can increase the expression of the ACE2 protein, there was a lot of concern on a theoretical basis that if you have a drug that is going to influence this protein by increasing its expression, and if you have more expression, then presumably there are more sites for the virus to bind, and therefore presumably there will be more entry of the virus into the host and more infection of the host epithelial cells, that that potentially could be a mechanism by which uh, ACE inhibitors could uh, influence, for example, uh, the progression of disease. And in the initial stages of the pandemic, for example, because hypertension and diabetes were linked as um, cofactors that were predictive of worse outcomes, and because a lot of patients who have diabetes and hypertension are treated with an ACE inhibitor, there was a lot of speculation, for example, that treatment with ACE inhibitors was influencing the pathway, increasing ACE to expression, and facilitating binding of the virus and exposure uh, and infection of the host. Having said all that, uh, this is really all hypothetical. The data that we know right now is that clearly the ACE2 protein is the receptor that the virus uses to bind to uh, cells. Secondly, we know that uh, cigarette smoke influences the expression of the ACE2 protein. There's now um, several studies actually that have demonstrated using different techniques that smokers have an increased expression of the ACE2 protein within the lung. And in particular, um, if you look at current smokers, there is an increase in expression, and in particular within the context of COPD, um, individuals with COPD have higher levels of expression when compared with individuals who have not smoked. Uh, that information again suggests that smoking 
potentially may predispose to uh, worse outcomes or enhanced chance of infectivity by modulating the ACE2 protein. Having said all that, again, showing that a factor can increase the expression of the protein is not the same as showing what the effect of that increase in protein expression actually does in terms of the function of the cell, cell death and infectivity, and entry of the virus into the host. So there's um, still a lot of questions that are not addressed with respect uh, to uh, uh, the, the, the impact of the ACE2 protein and in particular smoking. One of the points that's really important to make about ACE inhibitors is that despite uh, the theory behind uh, the potential impact of um, ACE inhibitors on this pathway, the recommendation is not to stop ACE inhibitor therapy on patients with COVID-19 infection because potentially withdrawing antihypertensive medication in these patients, in particular in patients who may have significant other comorbid factors which make them really prone to bad outcomes if, for example, they would have poorly controlled blood pressure, uh, potentially uh, we might be uh, causing more harm than good. But clearly this is an area where uh, there's a need for a lot more investigation. Before COVID, we knew what smoking did to the nasal passages, to the lung. It damaged the epithelia, the cilia, the nose and also in the lungs, and you mentioned about some of the surfactant-producing cells, like the type 2 cells. Do you think chronic smokers, uh, the pre-existing damage from the smoking has anything to do with the infectivity, apart from the theoretical concept of ACE inhibitors? Would that make them more susceptible? That's a fantastic uh, question, and I, I think that's one of the questions that uh, clearly should be the focus of uh, significant research efforts. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to be seeing a lot of research publications coming out in the near future about that. We do know that smoking affects not just the ACE protein expression, but a whole variety of uh, epithelial functions, both within the nasal passages, as you stated, Amit, but also within large airways, within small airways, and within distal lung. We also know that smoking impacts uh, mucin gene expression and enhances the production of mucus. And smoking, of course, uh, induces profound effects on both innate, the early immune response to infection, as well as the adaptive immune response, meaning the immune response that develops um, on the basis of specific or targeted T cell and B cell responses to any infection. How all of those factors combine to influence the course of disease in smokers who get exposed to COVID-19 is still at this point in time not uh, really appreciated, but there are many reasons or many points of evidence that we already uh, know of in terms of the impact of smoking on uh, host responses to other viral infections, such as influenza, for example, that would suggest that similar mechanisms would similarly 
predispose individuals to uh, worse outcomes from COVID-19, as well as potentially the development of persistent lung injury, even after resolution of, of active infection. That's great. I'll just make a point here. There are two things we are dealing with. The virus is called SARS-CoV-2, and uh, there are around 50% or more people who are asymptomatic uh, moving around with the virus, and they could be smokers, non-smokers. And COVID-19 is the infection caused by this coronavirus. It's called COVID-19. The remaining 50% where you mentioned 80% have mild symptoms, so they have to have some symptoms. And out of the 20%, 15% have moderate symptoms. They get admitted in the hospital. And of course, 5% end up in the ICU with death. So there's a large number of asymptomatic patients who have the SARS-CoV-2 virus who are smokers. And they may not be progressing to COVID-19 as yet, but may be at risk of uh, passing on the virus to other people who are smokers. The question to uh, Taylor is, there is this huge body, not huge, I mean, there are a few papers which have come up which caught the attention of everybody, which says, wait, 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 what is going on? What are you saying in this paper? One of the papers said that uh, people who smoke might have a fewer chance of getting COVID-19, which means cigarette smoking is protecting against COVID-19. And we wanted your idea about those studies and what kind of studies are there and can you elaborate on it? Sure, I, and first I'm gonna make a general comment about some of the early research that's been coming out regarding smoking and, and uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection and, and COVID-19 disease. A lot of these are pre-publication. Most of them haven't had the kind of rigorous peer review uh, that um, we count on. The other thing that I would say is none of them are experiments. They are all, all of the publications that you're referencing are all observational studies. Not to say that observational data isn't uh, worthwhile for us to look at. I just believe that the inferences that can be made need to be made cautiously because in observational studies, there are all kinds of opportunities for unseen bias to be introduced uh, into the study. Uh, there may be influences on why the data turned out that way that we really can't understand from the observational data. The last comment I'd make that's in general is that observational data is important when it has a number of features, and that is that the observations have a temporal relationship so that, again, smoking and infection uh, are temporally related, that there's a consistent direction of all of the observational data. Um, and one of the other things that I count on is that the, that the observational conclusions make biological sense. And that's where I have, I have problems on many of those levels with some of the data that you referenced. So let me direct, directly address it. Early data from uh, China suggested that there was perhaps an underrepresentation of smokers among those who tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 infection, whether or not they were symptomatic, but an overrepresentation of smokers among those who required hospitalization or who had uh, severe or critical disease. So those people who, as Rob mentioned, were hospitalized and were sick enough to go into the ICU, some of them sick enough to require 
mechanical ventilation. There is a uh, meta-analysis that was done that also suggested that smoking was a risk factor for severe and critical um, SARS-CoV-2 infection. And then these subsequent papers, most of them from Western Europe, several of them from a group in France, suggesting that smoking might be somehow protective. And the, the, the data that they were counting on was looking at patients who were being tested for the presence of SARS-CoV-2, they found an underrepresentation of smokers, current smokers among those patients, among those people, when comparing that to the population prevalence. That was found in some studies from France. There was one study from um, a large um, uh, health group in Israel that also demonstrated the same thing. I think there are a lot of flaws in, in that, those data. And rather than uh, to go point by point through them, I'd suggest that there are some biases in that observational data that I cannot believe. Uh, and that um, the suggestion that somehow smoking and the nicotine that people get from tobacco smoke uh, could somehow modulate the immune system to, to protect one from SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, to me seems Fantastic. I, I, I told a friend of mine uh, that um, if it turns out at the end of the day that smoking tobacco cigarettes is actually protective against SARS-CoV-2 infection and, and severe or critical disease, I'll eat my hat. And uh, so I'm stating that publicly here. I just don't believe that that's true. Uh, and we look at other data, Rob already mentioned this, we already know that uh, people who are smokers and who have influenza, seasonal influenza, have a higher risk of more severe disease or critical disease. We know from the MERS outbreak a number of years ago, which was fairly limited to, to the Middle East, um, that there is now retrospectively looking at the data, it looks like smoking was a risk factor for both infection and severe or, or critical infection with MERS virus, which is another coronavirus. And when we look generally at the population, as Rob already mentioned, we know that smoking is the most important risk factor for the development of chronic lung disease for a number of reasons, because of its direct toxic effects and some of the immune impacts in the, in the lung and the epithelium, as well as uh, in the immune system. And those effects completely overwhelm any positive immune modulation that one might get from nicotine. And I do recognize that nicotine has some immune modulating impacts, but I do not believe that cigarette smoking is protective. I believe that there are flaws in, in the data. As I say, I, I don't believe that all these studies have had the appropriate kind of peer review that we usually anticipate. Uh, and I would take it with a huge grain of salt. Thank you, Dr. Hayes and Dr. Vassello. We've been talking about the effect of smoking tobacco and using tobacco products on COVID-19. Just looking at the statistics today, 8.2 million cases all over the world and over 446,000 deaths all over the world. We don't know how many of these deaths could be prevented if we had quit smoking a while ago. Uh, this is a wake-up call. The COVID-19 has really uh, challenged us in ways that we have never felt before is destroyed economies, destroyed jobs, and also families are left without their loved ones in many cases. 
but from the prevention standpoint, from the modifiable standpoint, what we heard Dr. Hayes and Dr. Vassello say is one thing we can do for ourselves if we are smoking is to have this conversation within ourselves and with our providers and loved ones about what can we do with tobacco cessation and how is it going to change our life. And maybe this podcast is going to steer us towards that direction. Thank you for your time, uh, Dr. Hayes and Dr. Vassallo. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy. I'll see you back next week.